Want access to richer content and exclusive analysis on the business of sport? Sports Pro Plus is used by experts across the industry to make informed decisions, with two membership tiers offering access to original content, exclusive reports, and a suite of business intelligence tools. Become a member today at sportspromedia.com forward slash subscribe and use the code FCPOD10. That's FCPOD10 at checkout for a 10% discount. The Football Co. Business Podcast. The most creative minds and innovative thinkers in football in association with SoccerX. Connecting football for 25 years. Hello and welcome to the Football Co. Business Podcast. I'm your host Alex Manby and today I'll be diving into the world of football kits with Rob Warner, founder and director of the Spark Design Academy and a man who has spent much of his professional life in and around football kits and their design. Rob has held senior design positions at both Umbro and Puma, meaning he's been responsible for a plethora of well-known international and club kits, including England, 2006 World Cup champions Italy, Manchester City, and two of the most renowned notorious kits of all time, which FIFA tried to ban. More on that coming up shortly. Before we get stuck into the chat with Rob, please make sure you're following this podcast wherever you choose to listen so you don't miss out on some of the great guests we've got coming up. And if you're not doing so already, please follow Football Co. on LinkedIn and Twitter. So without further ado, let's get stuck into this wonderful, controversial, passion-inspiring world of football kits. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Alex. Pleasure to be here. First of all, did I miss anything in that intro? Any glaring errors or anything I failed to mention? No, I think you you caught most of it. There was yeah, there's, there's been so many kits. I wouldn't expect you to to list them all off. I was designing kits for fifteen years, and so I think they all kind of have their own level of significance depending on which team you support. Well, I'm I'm sure we'll get into um, many of those kits over the course of this chat. Rob, what is it about football kits that inspires such passion? And strong opinions. I mean, when you break it down, it's basically year after year, the same colours repeated ad infinitum, isn't it? Yeah, it can be. I think there's, as a designer, there's a certain amount of enjoyment from that in the challenge of wanting to work with a restricted colour palette, particular rules and regulations that you have to follow that you don't get with other types of, of design, particularly within fashion. But from a a fan's perspective or a, a consumer's perspective ultimately is buying the product. I think that the interest partly comes from it's the exciting start to a new season along with new transfers, new kits, you know, all, all the excitement, the new new video games come out, people get ready for that. And it's part of that where every team is at zero points, you know, and, and every, everyone's dreams are there to be fulfilled. But I think as well with kits, when we look back at them, I think we we probably judge them more on the memories that we attach to them once once the season's finished than the actual design, which is all we've got to focus on before the season starts. No, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure for a team that gets relegated, they'll rarely think of that kit with positive memories and, and conversely, win the league, win a cup. That's always going to be a kit that you'll treasure yeah. um, and remember fondly. Listening to that, it sounds like it's more the fans who keep you on your toes than than a club or or the manufacturer. It can be. It, it totally varies from team to team, from brand to brand. 
as to who has the most influence into the, the kit design and the, the sign-off process. So you always want to take into account fans' thoughts, opinions, wishes. You know, as a massive football fan myself, I'm, I'm hugely conscious of how would I perceive this if, if this was my team. So my ethos was always to try and create something that would surprise fans of a team or that would maybe show them something that they'd forgotten or or didn't already know about from the club's history. So I think if you can provide some of that, the, the fans will generally get on board with what you're doing if it's something that's insightful and, and meaningful to them. When it comes to creating for the, the players and the teams, obviously you want to make the, the product as efficient for the players as possible. You know, so much talk about marginal gains at an elite level. So you think about the materials, the construction, the weight, all those sorts of, of factors. But the, the players don't always have a huge input into whether the, the kit design gets signed off or not. Certainly working with the Cameroon national team in the in the mid-2000s, working with the England team back when it was Rio Ferdinand and John Terry and Lampard and those guys, the players had much more of a say in it than than with other teams that I worked with. Usually it would be CEO, marketing director. Sometimes you'd get the coaching staff would be involved as well. That's interesting that the players would get involved. Is that more about the performance side of things or is that more sort of vanity, you know, what it looks like when they're wearing it on the pitch? A bit of both, I think. I mean, there's there's definitely a, a big benefit to the players of if they feel comfortable in what they're wearing, then obviously they'll they'll perform better on the field than if they're uncomfortable with something that they're wearing. It would be like I don't know showing up for a, a job interview wearing scruffy sweatpants and a and a hoodie. You know, you perhaps wouldn't back yourself to get the job if everybody else was wearing a suit. And so, I think walking out onto the field of play it is important that. The players are happy and confident in in what they've got. Certainly, that was part of the thinking with the work that we did around the the two thousand and six World Cup, where we wanted players to be faster at, at Puma, and so the the easiest way to do that is make the kit skin tight and aerodynamic on a on a human body. But then you think about the athletes involved, and you you think of well, we had the Czech Republic with Thomas Rosicky and Jan Koller and guys like that that just wouldn't have looked good in, in skin-tight shirts. And so, you know, we, we had to take that into account and balance out the science and the psychology of it all. I certainly can't imagine Jan Koller in a, in a skin-tight shirt. Others can pull it off, but I'm not, uh, not sure he could. <laughs> he was a unique character. I can imagine. Um, I always think the goalkeepers get a hard time of it. Maybe not so much now, but back in the 90s, it felt like kit designers would do a kind of fairly solid job on on most of the kits and then they just go nuts on the keepers kits is that something you found as well yeah i think initially it became much more of a factor i guess certainly in the early 2000s and then i think as as time has gone on since then the goalkeeper shirts have become more considered in the way that they're they're designed i think the hard thing for a designer can be trying to figure out what a particular goalkeeper wants because there are there are two schools of thought around whether a keeper should wear bright colours or not. So initially, way back in the early days of football, goalkeepers would just wear the same colour as everybody else. Um, and then they they were then changed about 10 years after kits were introduced, goalkeepers changed into wearing a contrast colour so that they'd stand out in a melee of players. 
but then over time it became the, the argument about is it better to stand out so that an attacker is more attracted to you as a target and more likely to shoot at you, or is it better to not stand out so the attacker can't see you as a target and doesn't know how to avoid you and different keepers have different thoughts on that and then you you get into goalkeepers like Joe Hart who always wanted to wear certainly when he was wearing umbro kit um, including the the boots and gloves he always wanted to wear the same color head to toe so we'd work really hard with him to make sure that that everything everything matched his boots and gloves had to match and his shirt shorts and socks had to match as well and then you'd have other goalkeepers there was one famously that we worked with who shall remain unnamed who was little bit conscious about his weight um, and how he appeared on particularly on tv so he always wanted to be dressed head to toe in black and so when we went to present to his particular club there were a couple of other options that we wanted to be in the selection for when there was a kit clash but we we knew they'd be difficult to get through so we presented other options as well like pink and horizontal stripes and things like that that very much emphasize if you've got a slightly out of shape physique so it kind of led the witness a little bit towards choosing the ones that we wanted. Well, we won't name names, but answers on a postcard if anyone <laughs> wants to guess who that might be. Um, you were talking about Joe Hart there, and all I could picture was um, 2012 Euros in his bright red England kit, yeah, head to toe, diving the wrong way as Pirlo sort of smoothly chipped that Penenka over him. But um, we don't want to talk about England-Italy penalty shootouts. That's still no, sort of... It's a nasty rabbit hole. So it sounds like there's a lot of stakeholders involved, but ultimately, who would you say is in charge? Is it you, the kit designer? Is it the manufacturer, uh, the players, or or the team? Bit you know, be it the club or the national federation. Yeah, partly it will depend on which brand you're working for, uh, the value of a particular deal when you're wor- working in, with a with a club or with a federation. So. You know, if you are working for Nike and, and go and make a kit presentation to a, a club that you're paying a hundred million pounds over X amount of a contract, then obviously you've got a lot of sway in, in what the, the look and feel of the product will be like. Other times where the the contract is less lucrative or it's a smaller brand, then the club will have a lot more to, to say about it as well. Ultimately the team whether that's a club or a federation, always has to sign off the kit. There's no no real way of, of just pushing something through without approval. But the the approval process can be fairly fairly straightforward. You know, if it's if you're presenting a unique colour scheme but it's part of a bigger marketing campaign and it's all for the, the greater good of the publicity of the brand and the club, or there's a big performance story, then the, the clubs will generally be quite happy with it with a few tweaks. Other times you can present all of that to a, a fairly small club or federation and you know they'll just be adamant that what they want is absolutely what they should have. Then it becomes a little bit more of a hostage negotiation to try and get the design you want to end up on the field. I suppose they know that um, you know if they end up with a shirt that they don't think the fans will like, they're going to get it in the neck from whoever. Yeah, well, there's that. And then there's also in terms of the relative significance of the team. So kind of a, a case in point would be when we were working towards the, the 06 World Cup and I had to go and present to the, the Tunisian Federation. And normally that would have been a marketing director or whoever. It was you know relatively of, of little consequence. 
because we would do them a red kit and a white kit and contrast goalkeeper kit and job would be done. But on this occasion, because they just won the Africa Cup of Nations, it was the president of the federation and the coach, Roger Lemaire, who'd won the Euros with France. So we'd got the two biggest hitters in the federation. And certainly from the, the president's point of view, he's like, hey, we're the champions of Africa, so we want a different kit than every other African team. And it's got to be designed uniquely for us and whatever. And, you know, that's when you, as a fan, you can perhaps understand that and think, oh, I can see why, why he wants that. But you have to put your business head on and think, well, ultimately it is, it's Tunisia. Yes, they've just won a, a competition, but we can't just do something that's completely unique and bespoke for them because from a, a business perspective, it just isn't viable. Would you say Le Maire and the president of the Tunisian Federation are the toughest clients you've ever had to deal with, be it club um, or indeed a player maybe? No, there's, there's, been a, there's been a few. I think one or two that stand out, one would be actually on the same trip as, as presenting to the Tunisian Federation. The final leg of that trip was travelling to Bulgaria and presenting to the Bulgarian Federation, where the night before, we'd, we, so we'd flown from Germany to, to Tunisia. We then flew from Tunisia back to Germany to present to the Cameroon players. They were playing in a kind of pseudo charity matchup in Hamburg. So we, we presented to them, went out with a few of the players after the game, ended up being quite a late night, quite a lot of champagne being drunk from mugs, teacups, whatever the owner could find at the local African nightclub that we ended up in. And then the following morning, after about two hours sleep, we've flown out to Sofia to present to the, the Bulgarian Federation. So quick shower, come out of the shower, about a thousand missed calls and realised that the, the meeting was supposed to start immediately. So I've run downstairs and into the room fairly unprepared. And there's Risto Stoichkov and all of his friends just kind of sitting in the room waiting for me incredible amount of cigarette smoke in the room and I can well imagine that Bulgarian cigarettes wouldn't have been legal anywhere else in the world probably at that time they were you know it was fairly intense and you know Christo Stoichkov is a legend of world football not just Bulgarian football so if he sits there and tells me the white shirt I'm showing him is black everyone else in the room is going to agree with him um, it wasn't quite that extreme but there was definitely you know, he got some strong opinions on on what things needed to be, and it took a lot of gentle persuasion and navigation to get through it. And I actually think he was quite enjoying the sport aspect of it, of, of seeing how I'd how I'd get on with it. Um, but we we got through it; it was okay. But the kind of the final part of it was because we'd done one shirt that was designed to be the fastest football kit of all time, so it was. There's one performance solution. This is it. Everyone's getting the same shirt, but you'll have a unique graphic and all of your training products will have your country name on the back in your native tongue. So in Bulgaria, it was Cyrillic. And so we unveiled the training line and, and showed with what we thought was Bulgaria written on the back of it and Stoichkov and all his friends fall about laughing. And we'd, we'd taken the wording off the, the Federation crest so we thought that it said Bulgaria, but it actually said Bulgarian Football Federation. So all the shirts had Bulgarian written on the back of them, um, <laughs> which could have been a, a happy accident. I would have loved to have done an England jacket with English written on the back. We'd have 
probably sold millions. Um, but, Say what you see. You're just labelling, you know, the person uh, wearing it. Yeah, I, I think that's the issue, though, isn't it? Labelling doesn't really go down anymore. But uh, it's perhaps that idea's moment has passed. But, yeah, it was an interesting one. And then I, I think the other one that stands out was working at Umbro. We'd, we'd go in and present to Manchester City, and it would always be the chairman would be in there, Caldoun, and then usually the coaching staff. You know, we'd, we'd worked with Mark Hughes and his team and then obviously Roberto Mancini was was in there and we, we worked with him. But the one uh, meeting we went to and, and weren't expecting was that Caldoun's younger brother was in there and he had a fair amount of sway in terms of what colours and graphics and whatever else were, were going to be the right thing. So it was, you know, it was quite interesting just to get a very, very different perspective on it, but certainly one that I don't think I'd prepared for before the meeting. Delighted that we've got mention of Fristo Stoichkov on this podcast, by the way. You started talking about Bulgaria and you started talking about difficult clients. And I thought, if Stoichkov's not involved in this story, I'm going to be very <laughs> disappointed. so many tales. For, I was only there 24 hours and there's so much to tell you about that trip. Just an incredible place. Oh, unbelievable. I mean, this is a man nicknamed the Dagger. I think we should make it a rule that um, you know any football card business podcast needs to have at least one mention of Stoichkov's name. I'm pretty sure we can Definitely. manage that. We should get him on. <laughs> we should get him on. Get him with him. <laughs> yeah, no, we should. We absolutely should. So, I mean, what's clearly coming out of this, Rob, is it's, it's a huge undertaking, right? And how long yeah. to, to create any football kit, particularly a premium football kit, how long does the whole process take from first sitting down, round a table, brainstorming, through to actually seeing it on the pitch or in the club store? It can totally vary, but I would say a when a team is kind of on a on a contract and you you're in the contract and you know what's happening, um, we at brands would probably start thinking about what we're going to do, particularly for the bigger teams, round about now. So like the October time, we would be thinking about what teams would be wearing for the 23-24 season. So not what goes on players next summer, but what goes on them the summer after because the, the lead times are so big, especially with obviously the bigger teams. If you think of a Manchester United, England, Italy, the, just the sheer quantity of shirts, you know, it's no quick undertaking to send three million Manchester United shirts down a production line. You know, with a, with a big team like that, production would probably start in January or February of next year ready to, to kick the team out in the summer, which is why you'll you'll often see leaks or supposed leaks for next season already on social media, which is, you know, it's not something I'm a, especially a fan of, of seeing that because I think it's nice for the brands and the clubs to have their big moment and show their work rather than seeing it draped across a pallet in a warehouse. But you, you can get dropped in it at the last minute as well, where a, a team will be signed right before the World Cup or just as the season's about to start or the sponsor will change either expectedly or unexpectedly. So sometimes you'll find that the shirts have to be manufactured with no sponsor and it all gets delivered into the local warehouse and, and the sponsors have to go on there. So the, the timelines can vary, but in an, in an ideal world, you're probably working off around about a 20-month timeline from initial concept to when it walks out on the pitch. That's incredible. I, I mean, my feeling about the leaks, actually, especially hearing what you're saying there, is that they don't happen as much as you might expect. It, 
of course they they come out. It's probably helped, I guess, that there are always fake leaks as well. Aren't yeah, they? you always sort of see, you know, this is the new kit, and you think there is no way, you know, that that's you know that club is going to wear a pink shirt next year. So maybe the real leaks and the fake leaks kind of cancel each other out. But it feels to me like, given what an operation it is, it's um it's surprising there aren't more of them. But what an amazing lead time, you know, twenty months and. And for you as a designer working throughout that, when it all comes off and you see, you know, these footballing gods, in some cases it must be your personal heroes, walking out onto the pitch wearing the shirt, that must be yeah. some feeling. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it still, it still doesn't feel real at all to know the kits that I've worked on, the, the players that have worn it, the moments that, that took place in those kits. And not just... The big ones, like I mentioned at the start, really, just there's so many moments of significance for, you know, there's some kid out there who their first ever football shirt was something that, that I designed and they'll cherish that just the way I cherish my 1987 Hummel Villa home shirt, you know, the, the memories of that where, you know, there's no huge achievements necessarily attached to a particular shirt, but it's just there, I think. So from the, the football romantic side of it, yeah, it's, it's crazy almost to the point of being incomprehensible. I think from a design perspective, it's the opposite because your kit walks out onto the field, but you've already designed the following season's kit. So you're looking at it and thinking, nah, I wish I'd done that different. I wish we'd got that through the negotiations. I wish we could have afforded to do that differently. You know, So the best designers are usually their own worst critic, which is a good and a very bad thing rolled into one. You probably saw sort of head down in the new kit as well. You're like, oh, yeah, I remember that kit. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that in about a year. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. And I think as well you can you can sometimes be surprised because although particularly with the bigger brands, a lot of stuff is controlled centrally because it's such a big operation. So like you probably Nike, Adidas, Puma type brands, but then also they've got a huge local presence through all the subsidiary companies as well. And so quite often they will they will be signing their own teams and using the kits that, that you've initially designed. They might be tweaked or whatever, but they'll use the design and badge and colour it and put it on whoever they've signed. And even recently on Twitter, I was shown, I forget which team it was, but someone that was fairly significant. And I never had a clue that they'd worn anything that I'd designed. No idea at all. And somebody was like, oh, this kit from whenever 2004 or something. I'm just like, what? I had no idea. So yeah, you still you still get surprised with it sometimes. How does that vary when it comes to second and third strips? It feels to me like maybe creatively it sort of opens the door to a bit more yeah. freedom of expression and, and, and room to play with. Sometimes with great results, I mean, I'm sure we could talk about these for ages, but um, I think about the United early 90s yellow and green sharp shirt. That's sort yeah. of a, a quite an iconic second strip or Arsenal's bruised bananas, you know, or sometimes more kind of infamous than celebrated. The one that springs to mind there is probably United again. I'm sure you know the one I'm going to talk about, yeah. the, the, the grey one that they played with till halftime. Was it was it the Dell, I think? It was, yeah. Away at Southampton. Yeah, where famously um, all the fans wear grey. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, we don't want to go into that, but but is that how you see it? A sort of a little bit more fun, maybe a little bit less pressure and, and certainly a bit more room to, for sort of freedom? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I first got into kit design, so my first full season of designs was the 2002-03 season, showing my age there. Um, hmm. But the, 
working with Lazio, they already at that point had four kits a season. They had domestic home and away and European home and away, which weren't that different really, you know, not compared to what a third kit is to a home kit. So we had to try and find that variety, but it was more or less two home and away kits per season. And then it became a little bit more common for more teams to have a third kit. And partly it's a bit of fun, you know, that, that you can have from a creative perspective because with most home kits, if you don't do enough with it, people complain that, you know, it's just a T-shirt or it's not different enough from last season. And if you do too much with it, people complain that it's not traditional, it's not us. So home kits, particularly for certain teams like England, can be a, a little bit of a poison chalice. Working with Bordeaux from the 2004 season was a real kind of light bulb moment for me, really, where the president of the club there was really forward thinking. And, and his view on it was that the home kit should always be somewhat traditional, but with the scapulaire, so the chevron on the front, they always wanted that to have quite a modern take on it because they saw themselves as a club being traditional but forward thinking. So it was always in the Bordeaux blue, always with the scapulaire, but play with the proportions, play with the graphic of that. And then the away shirt and third shirt, one should be aimed more towards a much younger fan. And then one of them should look good with a pair of jeans. So you kind of know that most fans will, if you're going to buy a shirt, most fans will buy the home shirt. And then the younger fans would probably want all three. And then with the people who are on the fence, you know, you, you want one of those second or third shirts to be something that they probably feel quite comfortable wearing to the pub or, you know, it's a football shirt, but it doesn't really feel leery or too traditional. And so that was an approach then that I tried to bring across all the teams that I was, I was working for. So let's move on to two of the kits you've been involved in that probably got the most attention. Probably two of the kits that have got the most attention ever in the history of football kits. I am, of yeah. course, talking about Cameroon, uh, the sleeveless and the all-in-one kit. I presume it wasn't done just to get attention, although it certainly did do that. So what was the thinking behind these? What's the story? So with the, the Cameroon sleeveless shirt, that was actually a design that I inherited so I arrived at Puma in October 2001 and Cameroon were about to wear the, the kit at the Cup of Nations in the January. My predecessor had designed it, obviously did an amazing job with it. And the, the intention at that time was most, most kits were very baggy, very loose fitting. And kind of one or two brands had started having a little bit of a look at wanting to do something that was tighter fitting. I think Capra had started doing it with Italy and I think maybe Diodora might have had a look at it at that point already as well. But the main thing was that shirt pulling was a huge issue and, you know, it's easy to, to look at it now and, and think about it. But, you know, back in those days, it was like the, the guys were running around the field almost intense. The, the shirts were huge. And so the thinking was, what can we do to eradicate that? Especially from a Cameroon perspective, it was a very limited pool of players so we kind of knew who was going to get called up every time. And a lot of their kind of strengths as a team really were their power and athleticism. They've got some very graceful players in there as well. Etu was just starting to break through. But a lot of what they were about was very much this kind of pace mixed with, with guile. And so the intention was, was to reduce the shirt pulling and make sure that the players retained that advantage. Obviously, by the time the, the tournament took place, there was uproar that, 
there were no sleeves on it. How can a football shirt not have sleeves? There was nothing in the rules that said the shirt had to have sleeves. But because of the uproar, kind of the rules changed a little bit. I think it was implied that it had to be in the rules or certainly there was then the the idea that there needed to be tournament badges on the sleeves of of shirts, which I'm not sure had happened before. So, yeah, well, how are you going to get around that if there's no sleeves? So my first job as a kit designer wasn't designing the sleeveless Cameroon shirt. It was taking the sleeveless Cameroon shirt, putting sleeves on it, but making it look like it had still got no sleeves, which was a challenge in its own right. So we actually worked with a, a, a black mesh material that we, we put onto the onto the, the upper arm of, of the players and it was attached just around the top edge of the shirt. And that enabled then the, the transfers for FIFA Fair Play and the competition logos and whatever else had to go on it. They almost looked like they were painted onto the players from the back of the stand. Yeah, it was a it was a pretty interesting challenge. So it, it was designed to be a sleeveless shirt. So compared to with a sleeveless shirt, normally you would have quite high cut slip, uh, armholes. So um, anybody that, that wears a sleeveless shirt or vest in the winter or whatever, you might be quite familiar that usually the, the armhole is cut quite close up into, into your armpit. Whereas with a T-shirt or something that's got a sleeve, that has to be a little bit lower just to, to allow room for the sleeve and to make sure you can lift your arms up and move. So part of the challenge that we had was these shirts had already been produced and so we needed to be able to retrofit a sleeve into an armhole that wasn't big enough to have a sleeve. And so part of that was needing to leave the bottom part of the armhole open, which wasn't ideal, particularly when it came to throw-ins. But, you know, I, I guess we, we kind of got away with it a little bit because everybody was so familiar with the story around it. And what did people think about it when it came out? I feel like maybe I've got rose-tinted glasses on here, but I feel like everyone loved it. Yeah. And it was only... You know, FIFA who thought this isn't hunky dory. Yeah, to, well, it, know, it went ballistic. Money. It went ballistic. I remember we we had a massive fire drill just to produce more Cameroon shirts, and then we did. I think we did an all black one that went into Puma's kind of elite fashion retailers. Then there was because Puma were were dressing Serena Williams at the time, so she had a longer version that I think she wore at the US Open or the French Open. I forget which. So Serena had the dress version of it. Every team that we kitted out suddenly wanted a sleeveless shirt for training, which, you know, they, they hadn't had before. And so all of a sudden it was it was all about, you know, biceps on the athletes and whatever else. So yeah, it was a it became a really, really big deal, but in a in a positive way. And just poor Jan Collar there beating the drum for keeping the sleeves in place. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> Oh, it's amazing. I mean, it really is one of the, the iconic football shirts of all time. I think, um, you know, both the sleeveless and then I remember well the, the solution that you put in place. One other thing I wanted to touch on, Rob, is shirt sponsors, because, you know, this is obviously a big part of the football business. It's premium inventory. I think um, the likes of Rakuten at Barcelona and, uh, and now TeamViewer as of this year at United are paying, you know, up around £50 million a year. Yeah. Um, and it's also something that you associate so strongly with a lot of those shirts. We've already mentioned a couple of them, haven't we? Sharp at, at Man yeah. United, for example. And some of them are just brilliant. I really feel like some of them add to the shirt. Uh, even if they were 
sort of totally incongruous, if the brand is totally incongruous with the game of football, I'm thinking about Newcastle Brown Ale sponsoring yeah. Newcastle. I'm thinking potentially about Mars sponsoring Napoli. Or, you know, you can't picture yeah. Maradona strolling around the, the San Paolo without seeing Mars and it somehow really sort of added to yeah. it. And then you get other ones that really, you know, just stand out like a sore thumb. Where do you stand on that? Do you see it, you know, generally having a shirt sponsor there? Is it a necessary evil? Is it a little bit of an irritation? Especially if, as you've said, it might come in right at the end of the design process. You've been working on a shirt for a year and a bit, and then this comes in, or, or, or is it a possible positive complement to the shirt? Yeah, I, it can work both ways. I, I think if you're lucky as a designer, then you get a brand who've got a nice logo that's fairly simple and easy to work with, fairly regular shape, and, and you know about it in advance, so you can work with it. So, for instance, like with the, the current Villa kit and Everton kit where they've got Kazoo on the front, decent brand by you know by the looks of it from the, the outside in, quite a nice logo, nothing you know, nothing untoward about it would be really easy to work with as a designer because it's basically a rectangle. I'm led to believe there may be some connotations about how it's Italians perceive the word kazoo, but I'm not fluent enough in Italian to, to know enough about that. Um, but I, I think they are a necessary evil. Certainly, for as long as financial fair play is in place, then everybody's got to have a sponsor. I think we saw... Again, speaking as a Villa fan, when Randy Lerner first bought the club and financial fair play wasn't a thing, we had the Acorns sponsorship on the front of the shirt, which was awesome to have a local children's hospice be promoted. And, you know, that just felt so good as a fan to be able to talk about that. But the reality is, you know, clubs are probably judged as much by, by spreadsheets now as they are by league tables. And that goes for transfer budget through to financial fair play you know I think it will be really interesting to see how thinking of Newcastle again under the new owners will that have an impact immediately on who their current sponsors are will it in the future what will that look like you know and, and I think you can also as a, as a designer you, you can be hamstrung by a, a sponsor that comes in last minute that you've got no knowledge is going to show up and there it is on a kit which happened to me with Lazio in I think 2004 where we'd done a shirt that I really loved it was one of my favorites and the third shirt was black with this kind of electric blue trim and detail running through it and previously they'd been sponsored by Siemens so we knew what the logo looked like it was a white rectangle it looked great but the, the Siemens contract came to an end a new sponsorship was signed at the last minute badged up locally and the, the team walked out with Cotto written on the front of the shirts which is a very old Palmer Ham company with a very old logo, which they insist is in kind of off-brown and mustard, which did nothing at all for the for the design of the shirt. So it was yeah, heartbreaking to see that take to the field every week for a season. Oh, not a lot you can do about it, though, I suppose. And, and you're, you're absolutely right that teams without a sponsor is has become a rare exception. Yeah. And in fact, to the point that Paddy Power did this very sort of PRable exercising not putting their logo on the front of Huddersfield's shirt, yeah. which, you know, ended up probably getting more, far more attention and deliberately so from the Department of Mischief at, uh, at Paddy Power, but probably yeah. got far more attention than, you know, than having their logo on Huddersfield's shirt all season would have done. Yeah, yeah definitely. 
So that's a, a recent tendency and a couple of other ones that, um, that I wanted to touch on. One that particularly seems to be prevalent now and one that I personally enjoy as a, as a guy who sort of the 90s was when I really fell in love with football and, and, and started watching football religiously is that there seem to be these throwback kits coming out with increasing frequency, these sort of harking back to to maybe the 90s. Is that something that you've seen? Any, any reason why you think that might be happening now? Yeah, well, I think it's twofold. I mean, certainly street fashion has been heavily influenced by the 90s for quite a while now. Um, and fashion typically is quite cyclical, really. So, you know, we were due a, a bit of a 90s revival, but particularly in sportswear because... You know, you could make a good argument that it was the golden era of sportswear, really, where the brand started really kicking out all the most innovative trainers and football shirts and basketball shoes and, and whatever else, you know, whether that was from a graphic perspective or a technological perspective. So it was always going to find its way back into into fashion. And then as that happened, I think it coincided with people wanting to collect football shirts that perhaps they were too young to have to have owned at the time you know if, if you think of the holy grail of some things like the, the netherlands 1988 shirt or some of those things where there's so very few of them available as replicas compared to you know in 30 years time if you want a, a netherlands 2021 shirt you'll probably be able to pick one up no problem but from back then they were still very rare and exotic even at the time they were rare and exotic i remember buying it around about that era of Milan and, and an Ajax home shirt. And it wasn't a case of you could just go online and, and pick any shirt you wanted. It was I had to go to an exhibition at the NEC and there was some stand there that had got all these amazing shirts and you could get them printed. So you could have a number on the back of it, which was just completely unheard of at the time. So, you know, I, I think the two worlds collided of collectors and fashion and the, the timing was right. I, I think as well, the 90s is probably the first era where there was a lot for designers to look back on and, and be influenced by or, or certainly looking at the 90s. Whereas if you were designing in the 90s or the, the noughties, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot from before the 90s that you could really look at and, and pull out as being, oh, that's that memorable graphic or colorway or whatever, because the 90s were where designers really started to just throw as much stuff at the screen and see what they could get away with. Oh, that, that makes sense. I wonder, you know, were people buying more replica shirts then as well? And and it's interesting what you're talking about, sort of the difficulty of getting hold of some of these shirts. I'm an avid fan of websites like Classic Football Shirts, which I'm sure you're very aware of. And, you know, you can just go down rabbit holes and spend That's hours fabulous. and hours and hours. And you look at these shirts, it's fantastic. And you can tell the rarity based on, based on price, you know, you yeah. get these sort of shirts and you can look at, you know, whatever it is, a Southampton Sanderson, Letizia, original 95 yeah. shirt. And it's, it's a sort of holy grail, some of those shirts that you, I'm sure finding them must be so rare. And it's something which I'm sure 90% of the world's population would find completely bizarre, but those 10% of us uh, hardcore football fans, it's, um, it's far more enjoyable. You might be surprised by the numbers, I reckon, because if you think back a few years ago, so there was a, a photo of that little kid, I forget where he was, somewhere in the Middle East, I think, who was wearing a sky blue and white striped bin bag wasn't he to play football in and he'd written Messi on the back Messi on the back yeah, yeah. so you know I think it it does penetrate a lot more than perhaps we give it credit for and I, I think 
But when I was a kid, football shirts were very unattainable, not just in terms of getting hold of them, but they were, you know, they were expensive and it was a Christmas present for me. It wasn't the start of the season thing. And so whereas now it's almost an expectation that if you've got a kid who's into football, you've got to get them the new kit. You know, there are still plenty of places that consume a lot of football that don't have that. And so I think part of the, the emphasis now for kit designers and perhaps why some of the more graphical stuff is becoming interesting is because we're seeing younger people play perhaps more football or interact with football more on a video game than they actually do on a football pitch or in a stadium. So how the crest shows up on social media, how a kit shows up on on the latest video games, etc., has has a massive impact. And so things with big graphics, you know, are going to stand out because they're going to be popular on video games, and that wins you new fans. It's interesting. It's, it sort of ties into another tendency, which is celebrating football kit launches, which I feel like has become an increasingly important part of any football club or national team's calendar is the, is the kit launch. And we at Football Co have worked on several of these. I remember we supported Puma with their Arsenal kit launch, which included productions in, I think, four different countries appealing to those key target markets. How do you feel about it? Because it does polarise opinions. There are some cynics who say this is a sort of over-the-top, you know, commercial circus. And there are others who say this is a fantastic way to engage with fans. And I suppose for a social media team, a sort of fairly unique opportunity to be lighthearted and innovative and different. Because while the fans will care hugely about the shirt, and I suppose this is also true of player transfer announcement videos or however they choose to do it, they'll care hugely about what the shirt looks like or whether the player's any good. But they'll sort of let the club have a bit of fun yeah. With the with the announcement itself, be it the kit launch or the player, so um, which side do you uh, are you on in that debate? I like it. I mean, I, I think with football now, it's become so. In terms of winning trophies and having something to celebrate, it's so niche. Most Premier League teams now start the season with the fans knowing realistically they're not going to win anything. You know, there might be two, three in a good season. There might be four teams in the race to to win the title come February or March. So then the conversation flips to well, who's got the most money to spend? Who's got the you know the biggest transfer budget and the wealthiest owners? Because that's that's the next most attainable prize. And then I think having a great kit becomes something about your club that you can be proud of. Where most fans would be proud of their club anyway, but you know the realities of of teams winning trophies is is so slim. And so I think having some some fun and enjoyment for for how the the kit launch is done. You know, it's good. I think it needs it. Otherwise, football does just become this sterile, almost like Formula One, really, where it's all just about sponsors and who can afford the best engine and tyres rather than, you know, what what football should be, the great level. You can be a great team in a horrible kit and there's never going to be an escape from the fact that they're in a horrible kit like the Manchester City third shirt this season. I'm with you on that. I think it's a lot of fun and I think it does give those innovative social media managers and content creators at lesser known clubs, the chance to shine because, um, you know, it's very hard for someone sending a tweet saying, you know, you are in the second division of whichever country and we've drawn one all. No one's going to look at that. But, yeah. you know, I loved um, 
what a Betis did a couple of great player announcement. Uh, they did Bellerin in the Grand Theft Auto style, and Southampton always seem to do a good job with kit launches as well. So it really, it, you know, rewards that yeah. um, that innovation. I think it's I think it's fantastic. Looking forward, Rob, do you see any particular in your crystal ball any sort of developments that you expect to happen in football kit design or possibly launches or anything else associated with football kits? In the coming years, yeah, I mean, I, I think we've perhaps seen a little bit of almost a slowdown in terms of innovation. Although there's certainly from a, a, a kit manufacturing perspective, I, I think although they're now it's much more common to have a player jersey and a fan jersey, which I am a, a big advocate of because I think they both need to be fit for purpose. But I think some brands do a better job of that than others right now in terms of just the real difference between the two levels of the shirt. Um, so I'd like to see that distinction become a little bit more clear and not just, you know, well, the fans one gets cheaper and the players one gets more expensive, nor what does a fan need? What's the weight? What's the fit? You know, it should still look the same, but it's got to be the right for for where it's being worn and who by. You know, you could tell I support a, a team that's sponsored by Kappa because obviously the fans have, big issue with with squeezing into the replica shirts whereas from a, a pro perspective we've seen a, a big move from a from a lot of the bigger brands now towards uh, seamless shirts so nike are doing it a lot adidas puma have just launched the new italy shirt which i've not been able to get my hands on yet but where it's it's knitted completely as a circle usually or the, the panels are, are knitted and and joined together so can be great from a functional perspective, breathable, lightweight, recycled materials. But there's also that there can be some real sustainability benefits to it as well, where you get a lot less leftover material and waste that comes from manufacturing that way. So I think I'd probably like to see, I don't know how likely it is, but I'd like to see something where there's, there's a lot more thought put into the environmental impacts of football kits over the coming years. So using recycled polyester has been done for quite a while now, but that's almost kind of table stakes, really. It's it's almost like should be an, apo- an apology of, oh, yeah, sorry, we're making more polyester, but at least it's something that's been used before. If, if you think of how much effort from a, a carbon emissions perspective, just as a start point, goes into making a football shirt, making the fabric, shipping it around the world, and the team wear it from August till May, and then the new one's launched sometimes the last game of the season. So it's not even a 12-month life cycle. There's a lot of stuff that's being produced, and then what happens to it after that? I think brands are quite keen to tell the story at the front end of how it's okay for the environment. It's a better approach than we've had before, but what happens at the end? You know, what's the cradle to grave story of, you know, what where what happens to these shirts? Do they, you know, besides just sitting in attics or Oxfam's or wherever else, you know, how can they have a life once the season's finished? I think it's fascinating, and I'm certainly guilty of having a good few boxes of football shirts sitting up in my attic. Which, uh, as long as you don't burn them or bury them in the garden, then you're all right, I think. But no, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. But it, it's a fascinating subject, and I'm sure brands like Adidas particularly spring to mind with the recycled polyester shoes, which they're creating and, and doing similar things with shirts. You know, they should continue to do that, both from a moral perspective and also from a 
brand positioning perspective because this is something that people care about more and more and more and you, you would expect that to come through so fingers crossed it does and it's interesting what you say about again the, the performance shirt and the fan shirt because it slightly changes i suppose what the objective might be in that first brainstorming briefing session which we talked about earlier about you know is this about performance or is it about look is it about commercial potential and sellability or is it just about just, you know pr activity and some some buzzworthiness so um don't know that two shirt solution i think does does certainly solve some of those questions final question rob if you had to choose one all-time favorite football kit which would it be it can be but doesn't have to be one that you made yourself yeah it wouldn't be one that i've made myself i think <laughs> um I'm going to touch back on something that I said earlier, and I'm going to choose the the 1987 uh, Aston Villa Hummel shirt just because it was the first shirt that I ever had. And it's probably as far away from being a traditional Villa shirt as you can get because it was based off the the Denmark template. So it didn't have blue sleeves and a solid claret body, but it was my first football shirt. And so from a design perspective, it's not my favourite, but with football shirts, there's so much more to it than than just the design and that's really a case in point amazing rob warner thank you very much for your time if our listeners want to hear more from you more of these nuggets of kit related reminiscences and insights where can they find you so we've got a twitter channel called spark design academy or you can find it under spark academy same with youtube and then if you visit sparkdesignacademy.com we've actually got a couple of courses on there one geared towards people who either already or aspire to design football kits for a living and then another one that's tailored more towards people who collect football kits and just really want to know a lot more about what's gone into creating the things that they hold so dear brilliant thank you very much rob and thank you very much ladies and gentlemen for joining and listening to today's show there are some great guests coming up in this new podcast series so i repeat if you want to hear more please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get yours from All the best. The Football Co. Business Podcast. The most creative minds and innovative thinkers in football.